Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, on location on the Emerald Isle. I'll fly with Shea Party, an Aer Lingus pilot in his small single-engine plane over Trim Castle and history that predates the pyramids. Then talk about some little-known history of Ireland with historian David Gilroy. Then a trip out to the Cliffs of Moher with Captain Eugene Garrahy and a completely different perspective of the legendary cliffs from sea level. And then I'll search for my Irish roots. That's right, Irish roots with Patrick Roycroft with some surprising discoveries. First up, I take to the skies with Shea Party. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Shea Party, welcome. Good morning, Peter, and good morning to everybody. Uh, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, it's one thing to visit Ireland on the ground. It's another thing to see it from the air. And uh, you took me on a wonderful flight. On, on your plane, which, by the way, is manufactured in Georgia, in the United States, all over uh, Trim in Ireland. Tell me, first of all, what we what we did and what we saw. Uh, I suppose, and just you mentioned, uh, it was one of the highlights of, an, of anything I've done in the last few years, and really great to, I suppose, show off our beautiful country. 
we got airborne out of Trim and we made our way up towards Athboy and um, Halloween would be very familiar to your listeners. And we overflew uh, a hill of Clockta, uh, as in like clock. It's an ancient seat of the Druids of Ireland and where Samhain, the modern day Halloween began, they used to uh, extinguish all the fires and it was the first uh, fire of the new year basically signifying that all would be well and uh, the sun would be spending less time in the underworld and more time in this one. The site that you actually saw is from 450 AD, but actually underneath it, there's a much larger site from 1500 BC. And after that, then we made our way uh, basically south to pick up the Boyne at Trim Castle. And I think you spent some time on the ground there, but we overflew that and saw the uh, St. Augustine, Augustinian, should I say, Abbey on the north side and the actual castle itself, which dates from 1172 and took, believe it or not, 30 years to build say, by say Norman Tudor Lacey. Just to check, just to jump in there, I should tell everybody that you say when we took off, we took off from a small grass airfield. Oh, sorry, we did, owned by a colleague of mine uh, called Pat Murphy. He's also in Aer Lingus, and it's a 600-meter grass strip, exactly, yep. So, and we have a number of them around the country, but uh, yes, we were very was, fortunate. And your team, I think, spent a few hours there as well. And it's a it's a short field, but you know you're in the air when you're in the air. And the other thing I should tell everybody is we weren't flying above it on an Airbus 320 at, uh, at 27,000 feet. We were flying over it at about six to 800 feet. Yeah, exactly. Down the river, clear of sort of built-up areas. So it was uh, you got a, a nice view. And once we were up and going, I think it was quite smooth by been quite windy close to the ground so overall i think it was uh certainly i enjoyed enjoyed the time with you um we made our way south from trim castle then down towards newgrange and i think you know the more you talk about it the more you just absolutely admire the great work that the uh the people of the time built it's five thousand years old thousand years older than the pyramids and um it's very hard to explain, I suppose, you saw it from the air, Peter, but the shaft of light that comes in at the forward part of the chamber and makes its way towards the rear of the chamber, it's only four, uh, it's it basically over 5,000 years has lost four minutes of accuracy, not because of the build itself, but the tilt of the earth has changed slightly. So it's one of the best timepieces that man has ever created, um, which is amazing. Slane Castle then, obviously some of your listeners uh, would be very familiar with the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen. And back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, up to the early 2000s, we'd have had major concerts with U2 and a number of those bands. And now they're turning it into uh, a visitor centre and they formed a partnership with Brown Foreman who make a wonderful drink in the USA called Jack Daniels. And that's part of the rejuvenation uh, of the Boyne Valley, which is that whole area that we were... uh, we visited on our on our probably 40-minute trip. It's one thing to see something from the air, and it's one thing to have you be my airborne storyteller. It's another thing to try to put it all in perspective about how much history we're actually seeing, and it's, it's always, and what you're looking at in t- terms of topography, it's all green. I've never seen more green in my life from the air. I see a lot of it from the ground, but from the air, it's all green, and then you understand the power and the attraction and the... Uh, the importance of the river, don't you? Yeah, I think you 
summarised it very well there, Peter, that the Boyne River for Ireland, it is symbolically and mythologically, I suppose, the most important river in Ireland. And it has connected 5,000 years of human activity. If you start up at the uh, Hill of Clockton that we talked about earlier, right down through to Old Bridge, which was the 17th century Battle of the Boyne. And I suppose it's amazing when you do and you will reflect on that and you see and even a simple fact that 70% of the land in County Meath drains into the River Boyne and it's named uh, the Goddess Bone. The river basically has guided uh, us through its valley for several thousand years, just as it did today. It was our primary navigation feature as we did our flight, sorry, yesterday, uh, should I say. Every time you take off from that field, I'm guessing you're going to see something different. Absolutely, and I think I, I referred to you a couple of times. You saw them, you know, the ferry forts that farmers don't touch, etc. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those. So different views, different views of Slane Castle, different views of many magnificent houses with no names, old mills, etc. as well, along the route. And you talked about the emeralds or the different shades of green as Johnny Cash used to sing many years ago. We do get a lot of rainfall, and but we get amazing topography and amazing sights to see and an amazing landscape, a beautiful carpet of green colour throughout the country. So uh, we are very fortunate. You know, to sort of paint the picture beyond that, you know, some of the things that we saw, we would describe in the United States as like mythical crop circles, right? Yes, and that's what I refer to. Yeah, uh, where I grew up, we call them fairy forts. And my dad was a farmer. My brother is now in the Midlands. And they don't, yeah, generally they are left untouched. Uh, there was always a feeling or feeling that they would bring bad luck if you interfered with them. So in general, they're left, they're those crop forts that you call them, yes. <laughs> and we did not see, I just want to go on the record, we did not see any leprechauns. No, I've uh, heard of a few in my time, but I've never come across one, uh, but certainly have heard of a few in my time. But no, we did not see any. Did you, I, I presume on the rest of your trip, you uh, didn't come across any either? No, nor will I declare any when I return back to the United States. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> IRS will be pleased. No matter how much I've been drinking. Hey, let me ask you this, though. When you get into the air, as an experienced pilot as you are, what does it mean to you? That's a difficult question. In the day job, I am very fortunate. I think I have the best job in the world. Um, we get to go to good places. Um, Aer Lingus are a great company to work for. And in the small airplane, I suppose it's the freedom. And to pass on to other people where you bring people for a trip or try and encourage the next generation, it's to pass on the love of uh, aviation that sort of was given to me by people who are no longer with us, former instructors, etc. So... It's a vocational sort of career in its own way, but when I go flying, just I suppose the view and the freedom, going, you know, if it's a nice day, there's nothing to beat it. Okay, so I have to ask the obvious question. The A320 or the single-engine plane made in Georgia? The A320 provides an excellent lifestyle and career opportunity, and the uh, single-engine airplane allows me to go down and have nice barbecues on my brother's farm <laughs> or uh, visit, visit various flying clubs around, so... I think they work hand in hand. And it also allows you to do a few flybys. It does, absolutely, yes. It does, absolutely. And if truth be told, um, I, ho I hope this doesn't get anybody in trouble, but you uh, you did let me take the controls. Oh, I did, absolutely. And I think you have a wonderful future out of Peter. If uh, <laughs> CBS take a different uh, view of your career path, I think we get you back to Ireland and get you a license quickly. We're very short of good people over here. Hey, listen, I can always fly out of the country, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, most definitely. <laughs> What's the, to this day, you know, I don't want to take anything for granted. I don't think you want to take anything for granted. So what's the one thing that, you know, that's the overriding lesson for you every time you fly over your country? Well, 
Wow. Um, I suppose, well, yeah, we operate in and out of Europe. Uh, I'm primarily in Europe. The lessons, uh, I think, it's the it's the certainly view coming home. The view, it's the green carpet that we have. I don't know if that answers your question, but we have a unique country, unique people. I think, as we discussed, um, I, I do do love this country. I think we have uh, we have some issues to solve, but I think overall we have a great country here. And um, our lingus, thank God, over the many years that I've been with them, have given me the opportunity to do other great things as well. So, don't know if I specifically. It's a difficult question to answer on the spot. Well, um, the bottom line the bottom line is you love to fly and and you got a chance and I got a chance to have you fly me. So how could I be upset, right? True, yeah. No, it has given given great opportunities and uh, certainly to me and a, a lot of my colleagues as well and we are very, very fortunate. My thanks to Captain Party. What a great ride. Ever hear of Trim Ireland? Well, you should. It's smothered in Gaelic history and then some. And few know it better than David Gilroy. David, it's one of the first things that you think about when you think about Ireland, its castles, but this one's actually still standing. Yes, it is. And, and while there's many castles, as you said, the one in Trim here is the largest of its type in Ireland. It's the largest Anglo-Norman castle that you'll find, and it's in very good repair. Um, a, a large part of it still stands. How far back does it go? So the story of this castle starts about the 12th century. Um, it took it started was built initiated by a man called Hugh de Lacey, um, who was a Norman knight sent here to Ireland to do the wishes of the of King Henry II of England. Uh, and, and there are a lot of King Henrys. There are multiple King Henrys, and they go right up to number eight, I think. So he also had a large role to play in this locality. So what you're saying is that this castle has a distinction because it survived all Henrys. It is. It's. You could almost say it's Henry proof, maybe to a degree. <laughs> it's certainly. It's certainly um, a lot. Of, more, a lot of it is standing, um, despite all of the challenges it would have faced. Now, a lot of those challenges would have been uh, homegrown with regards to the reason for a castle. Obviously, is to dominate an environment, to dominate a space. Uh, you don't need to build a four meter thick wall uh, if you're living in in friendly in friendly land, um, and it's generally it's land that you've taken off somebody else through fair or foul means. Uh, so the previous occupier, owner, or ruler, or king. Um, well, the history books are written by the winners. 100%, you know. And then you have the B-roll, which is which is kept locally, obviously, in folklore, in tradition, in people who may have been displaced or the descendants of those people. Um, but again, as you say, the history books are written by those who, who live in castles. So what story actually stays the truth? What story remains that you know is true? Um, well, the, the story, the castle was built by, initiated by... Hugh de Lacey, completed by his son Walter de Lacey thirty years later in in the early thirteenth century, um, you know it is it evolved over time. It's not no one one building that lasts that length of time is is frozen in time. So it evolves over time. It evolves over as the landscape evolves, the political landscape, the religious landscape, um, and as the the world moves around it, so too does do the castles. So too do the the landmarks that are certainly built by ourselves. So our coming and going are reflected in on the walls of these places, uh, right across the country uh, and right across human history. You know, these places are a reflection of the people who control them at the time. And what what was the statement that was made by this castle? You build a castle to do what? You build a castle really to say, to say I'm capable of building a castle. That's, <laughs> that, that's a start. That's a start. And then what it does is, I'm here to stay. You know, I have the resources to stay here. My 
means, whether that's manpower, my uh, wealth, uh, I'm here to stay. I am now, uh, you are within my dominion um, and I am in, I'm in charge. And I control who comes in and who comes out. Absolutely. Um, with regards to building walls, the best part of having a wall is having a gate on that wall. And what that wall, the gate then means that you can control access sometimes to castles, sometimes to markets. You know, it's got an economic element of it as well with regards to taxation, with regards to um, just generally knowing what's going on. You've been able to count, count what's happening, the comings and goings, and then you can put a charge on that. So if you wanted to come in, there was a charge way before there was tourism. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it was a different type of charge. Um, but it, as with the history of humans, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> I don't think there was even lunch back then, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Bottom line, though, is it stood the test of time since the 1600s. Yeah, well, since... Well, the, even before that. Absolutely. So it started, uh, the first settlement that uh, that evolved into the castle started about 1172. So that's the 12th century. We're here 800 years later. Um, you know, it marks a very specific point in Irish history. Um, the, but the engineering of it, think of what the engineering was in terms of construction and materials back then absolutely if you look at the walls today they're four meters thick in place places the central keep has 20 sides on it you know and and then multiple um stories within that so the the, the resources that are necessary to be able to do that the, sk the 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 skill the skill levels the craftsmanship to be able to build those walls that they're as straight today as the day they were laid not to mention the architecture and the design i mean how'd you like to be the interior decorator for the king well, I'd certainly be making decisions in line with his tastes. <laughs> well, I, I got that you don't want to be beheaded. But but the point is, every little alleyway, every little stairway, every vestibule, every hidden doorway had to be mapped out. Absolutely. And there were also places to be lived in. So while they, formed, they, they were defensive structures, they were also built as habitations, as residences for people to, when somebody would be receiving visitors, it would be to establish not only that they dominate the area, but also their, their status within the area, that they're wealthy, that they're rich, um, that these things aren't built by people who aren't of means. And particularly the people who are at the top of the pyramid in these regards, they want to demonstrate that. Um, and, and they want to demonstrate it forcefully when necessary. Um, and then in a more in a more hospitable way when that's called for too. But certainly castles weren't built um, to make friends. Uh, they were built to dominate an area and to, and to establish 800 years later that castle was built to last. Of course, the real moral to this story is the taller the building and the higher the wall, the more power you project. Absolutely. He who has the, the highest hat is the most important person in the room. And as we can look at the height of buildings even now, the guys who own the big buildings in New York, they're the money men. How many stories? It was four stories in the castle. In those days, four stories was a skyscraper. Absolutely. If, if you look at uh, even as late as the 19th century in Ireland, it was only 200 years ago, 70% of the houses were made of, of clay. And that's 600 years later. So can you imagine the size relevant relative to the, to the surrounding inhabitants who by and large were ordinary people ordinary folk so they weren't people of means they were just getting on with the business of living and let the, the guys at the top fight it out but they were always always suffered the most you had a situation where you have this enormous it would be like a, an iceberg turning up in the middle of your of your sea Some of the, that it's, it's so much bigger so much so dominant within the landscape that this is something that everybody's aware of. you walk up to the wall of that castle and you look up you're looking up to the sky Re relative to your world view at that time even today it's impressive and we're, we're used to tall buildings but if you come from a place where the roof of your house was made of sods of clay that was very and you put that beside a castle that's 80 meters tall that is that's really a relative discrepancy that's 
remarkable. And of course, you know, we talk about the separation of church and state. Back then, the church was all powerful. Absolutely, absolutely. So the church played an important role within society at the time. It was strongly linked, particularly with the arrival of the Normans. They brought the Norman church with them. You can see here in Trim the remains of the Yellow Steeple, which was an Augustinian uh, monastery, St. Mary's Monastery. It survived uh, up to the 16th century with the arrival of yet another Henry. And Henry then brought with him uh, his different view, worldview, the separation from the Church of Rome for his own reasons. And so, so if you were a member of the church, then you had a problem. Certainly if you were a, a, a prominent member of the church, if you were an abbot or if you were in charge of the monasteries, uh, you had an issue or he had an issue with you. And if he had an issue with you, so uh, you, had, you, were, you were in trouble. We're talking with historian David Gilroy in Tram in, in Ireland. David, it's not just the separation of church and state. There's something else. It's the river. It's the river that flows through here. Absolutely. So for me personally, the river is, is the most important aspect of our region, um, of, on top of with, with the people, obviously. But the river has been the constant um, since the Ice Age receded 10,000 years ago. This river, the River Boyne, has been flowing. Essentially where it's, been flowing, where it's flowing today. We know that because the monuments and the buildings that were built over the last 5,000 years on the banks of the River Boyne are still on the banks of the River Boyne. So the river has been in the same place. Essentially, it's in a, 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 a stone channel, a limestone channel that runs through Ireland. Um, and we have footprints and bootprints and fingerprints of all human activity, in, in not only in Ireland but across Europe for the last 5,000 years, has left its mark here in the Boyne Valley region. Uh, whether we're talking about Halloween or we're talking about Newgrange and the Boyne and World UNESCO sites. What do you mean by Halloween? So, as everybody in Ireland certainly knows, and, and I'm sure your listeners know too, Halloween started in Ireland. Halloween is a descendant of this the Celtic festival of Samhain, um, and it evolved through the. Um, it started here in Ireland uh, with kind of religious festivities of some sort and um, we're not sure on what the nature of those were but it certainly it certainly uh, were based around the sense that at Halloween time in October the darkest time of the year when people when the crops were gathered where the animals were slaughtered and it was a time of plenty it was a time then to turn your mind to other things and certainly to think of your ancestors uh, and the other world so what happened was that people started to celebrate this the darkest time of the year with bonfires with all of these um, um, traditions that have now evolved into what we know globally as Halloween and as the Irish people diaspora moved across the world the, the four corners of the world they brought their traditions with them once it hit the States, obviously, it, it became something entirely different. But we, the tradition here would be around, instead of pumpkins, we would have used what was available to us as turnips and become the jack-o'-lanterns jack that you know today. The trick-or-treating is around the idea of, of a, a mischief and general, general um, mischief. <laughs> <laughs> got it. I got the concept. Yeah. Um, and so, and, but, so what we, we say and what we ask is when people, the massive Irish diaspora that spread throughout the world, 40 million plus people in the States claim or associate themselves with Ireland, we ask them at Halloween to look home, to look back home, back home to Ireland, to the centre of the world on Halloween night. And on Halloween night, the Hill of Ward, Athboy, the Boyne Valley is the centre of the world where the veil is thinnest, where you're closest to the other world and where you have a chance to meet someone or something you mightn't have had the chance to meet the rest of the year. So what you're saying is this castle represents more than just the 11th century or the 12th century. It represents reincarnation. This area, this whole area marks not only, it marks the evolution of our civilization and the civilization, our Western civilization, our European and global civilization that was influenced by that. It's an important step in that story. And it's, it's an important, and it stands proud. My thanks to David. 
Many of you have heard of the magnificent Cliffs of Moher. In fact, millions visit this Ireland site every year. But there may be a better way to experience it, and Eugene Garrahy knows how. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Eugene, the Cliffs of Moher have a particular significance in Irish history, in Irish folk, folklore, uh, and, in, and in current affairs as well. What does it mean to you? Yes, Peter, we're here in Doolin County Clare where we depart uh, every day uh, to tour the Cliffs of Moher by boat. What it means to me is it's been part of my life. I was born here in 1959, July 59, and I've been living here and other places around the world. But I'm back here uh, because we uh, developed our livelihoods through fishing at the Cliffs of Moher. You, you were a salmon fisherman. We were salmon fishermen, we were lobster fishermen, we were crab fishermen. And we etched out our existence and our livelihood at fishing at the bottom of the Cliffs of Moher, right along the sheer cliffs. And just to set a sense of place here, the water here can get pretty rough. Um, so if you're fishing, how big a boat were you in? So we used to fish uh, a 32-foot wooden half-decker boat. So you got wet, and you were rocking and rolling. <laughs> yeah, well, we were rocking and rolling. You know, for fishing lobster and crab, you generally fish them in reasonably calm weather. But if you want to catch uh, salmon, you have to fish them in rough weather, rather where you have a fairly sizable wave. And the reason for that, for people that might not know that, is that the more oxygen that's in the water being turned over by the waves, the faster the salmon can fish and the faster the salmon, sorry, can swim. And the faster the salmon can swim, the less opportunity he has to see the net. So he swims into the net. Whereas in calm weather, you can actually see the net on the down in the water. So they go around it or under it. So we had to fish in rough weather. And yes, there was a lot of rocking and rolling. <laughs> but then you, you stopped fishing. So yeah, in 1999, my brother PJ, it's a family business. My brother PJ, who was the main fisherman, um, was looking up at the Cliffs of Moher as he was fishing salmon. And he saw all those people along the edge of the cliffs at the Cliffs of Moher Centre. And he thought to himself, maybe there's an easier way of itching out a living in my local area. So he decided he would... Um, going to uh, tourism, fishing for tourists. But uh, also, because of the overfishing of stocks, fishing stocks, there was a government um, initiative that would entice people from fishing the stocks into uh, tourism. So that was incentivized, and uh, PJ went along and bought the first boat. So for people coming out to the Cliffs of Moher today, there's really no commercial fishing out here now. There's very little commercial fishing. There is still lobster and crab, and they have been protecting the stocks for the past 25 years. So in that way, when they catch small lobster, they throw them back in. And the stocks are as healthy today as they were 25 years ago. So you have a couple of fishermen in this area still fishing lobster 
and crab. But not salmon. Not salmon. Salmon, the salmon fishing has been closed down for, I think, possibly 20, 25, 30 years. Um, that's to protect the stocks because the stocks, the, stock, the stocks of salmon were becoming really depleted. So they closed down the fishing. It has been closed down for 25 years. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen any surveys, but I believe the stocks are being replenished. When you go out on a boat and you get close to the cliffs, you're not just seeing the cliffs, you're seeing the wildlife, you're seeing the birds. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky that this area is designated uh, a World UNESCO uh, geopark. And that geopark is to protect the flora, the fauna, but also the the bird sanctuary that is the Cliffs of Moher. So we have the biggest bird sanctuary on mainland Ireland at the Cliffs of Moher. And you have uh, 40,000 nesting birds there from puffins, to guillemots, to razorbills, to shags, uh, to the ordinary, um, they call them around here, foil on the seagull. So we have like 40,000 um, nesting birds there. We are privileged to be in this area with that amount of birds. It is a real privilege. It's a, a life's lesson, really. And when you get close to the boat and you get close to the cliffs, you don't just see the birds, you hear the birds. You do at this time of year. Now we're into we're just coming into June, so they have laid their eggs. They have uh, they're raising their young. They are really really busy birds now because a lot of those birds they dive and they catch sand. They, they dive for sand eels, and you'll see the puffins and the razorbills coming up out of the water with maybe ten sand eels across their beaks, and like you can feel the weight for them. So they have to go back up into the cliffs with that weight in their mouth. Lucas, I don't think we have any concept of what it's like to be a bird because from the time they open their eyes in the morning until they go to sleep at night time, it's providing for their young. It's feeding and providing for their young. And the interesting story about the puffin, these puffins, our local puffins here, they come in here in March, April. They have their young. They raise their young. They go back to sea. And a very, very interesting thing which intrigues me is they don't go to any other land mass. They go to the middle of the out North Atlantic Ocean and they stay there and come back again next March. To the exact same place? The exact same place. It's amazing. We don't understand these, Peter. We're, we're, we're mere minnows. You know, to me, it's either the, you know, the, the leatherback turtles or, or the puffins. The radar systems that are built into their brains are amazing because they've been geopositioning way before we ever had GPS. They know where to go. It's like the monarch butterflies always coming back to the same place in Mexico. I know. I don't think we. I don't think we have. We really understand how they do that yet. But they do. It's like the swallow. The swallow comes here in the summertime. Then they go down to South Africa, Cape Town, and they come back to the very same two-inch round nest in, in, in the farm shed here in this area and it's just and they have tagged them and they come back exactly to the same place I mean if we go if we go from here to Spain in the boat like we need all the technology possible to guide us and they can do it without anything it's amazing but then of course there's the mythology of the islands it's the mythology of the cliffs it's what another thing that draws people here they get married here they celebrate life here and in a certain sense also, it's sort of a tragic story. Not a sort of a tragic story. It is a tragic story. A lot of people also end their life here. 
at the Cliffs of Moher, yeah, tragically. But, you know, the Cliffs of Moher has this intrigue about it. You see beautiful brides and their grooms, and they're taking beautiful photographs at the top of the Cliffs of Moher. Um, and the beautiful, majestic background to it. And then you see the Coast Guard. I have two nephews here in the Coast Guard in Doolan. And a lot of their time is spent going, picking up um, the pieces after somebody decided to end their life at the Cliffs of Moher. So the Cliffs of Moher has that intrigue about it. It's the most beautiful place, mixed also with some tragedy. And, of course, it's really essentially the cycle of life. It is. You know, we feel when we are under the Cliffs of Moher in our boats with, you know, bringing people down to see it, like we're really there just to educate people as to how important it is to protect that sport sanctuary and, you know, what happens at the Cliffs of Moher. Because we really, we're only a minute on this globe, whereas the cliffs and the birds have been there for millennia. And we, we, we do try to explain to people how important it is to protect this beautiful area. Of course, when you see the sheer size of the cliffs and the power of the waves and, and the sea, you're also reminded of something else, how small you are. Yeah, well, we are we are insignificant because, uh, like, there even this little pier at Doolin here is beautiful in the summertime, but it disappears in the wintertime. You know, we are just so, as you say, we are so insignificant to the power of nature. And we're lucky in the northern hemisphere here uh, in Ireland that we don't have any extreme climates, but we do uh, get a lot of heavy weather at sea coming in from where you're from, Peter, over on the on the west side of the the Atlantic Ocean. But this is tidal, seriously tidal here. It is, yeah. We get about twenty foot tides here on spring tides, from from the top to the bottom, about twenty foot. So it's very tidal. We have become accustomed to our lives become accustomed to tides here. Everything operates around the tide and the moon and the pull of both. And I think a lot of the psychology in our little brains are affected by nature, such as tides and the moon. My thanks to Eugene. And finally, our never-ending quest for ancestry. And what better place to start than Ireland? But with a last name like Greenberg, what's the chance of me having Irish roots? Well, Patrick Roycroft did some painstaking research with a few surprising results. Patrick Roycroft, how are you, sir? Thank you so much, And nice Peter. to see you again. The last time we met, you were giving me a little bit of information on my father's side. That's there, right. There was some German influence there. My dad was a doctor, and where his father came from, and his father and his father before him. But the thing that got me crazy was the research you were doing on my mother's side. But let me start off by asking this question. After all the research you've done, it took you a couple of months... It did. Any Irish roots with me? Peter, your name is Greenberg, but you have no green Irish roots in you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, we wish you did, but unfortunately, no. Okay, uh, not but, on but, either side of your family. However, even though this is radio, I want to let everybody know that I'm looking here at sheafs and sheafs of paper <laughs> with very detailed writing, so you found something. Oh, I found a great deal about you, Peter. I probably know more about you than any other man on the planet. Um, Okay, this concludes our show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, last time we explored your father's side, but your mother's side has some unbelievable stories in it. And I'd like to share a few of those with you. Yeah. Your grandmother was a Margaret Angeli Evangeline Jennison, and her father, 
Now, her mother was Mary Worthington Beadle, and her father was an Elias Root Beadle. And he, like yourself, Peter, was a great man for travelling. He travelled internationally. And as far as I can tell, although you have no Irish ancestors, he is the only person in your family who ever set foot in Ireland. So we have an Irish connection. So you do have an Irish connection. Okay, good. And more than one. He actually stopped off in Cork in 1878, the year before he died. But you have another Irish connection, kind of remote, but Elias Root Beadle, he was a Presbyterian minister, and he employed female servants from Ireland. But he treated them very well. So they must have had actually a great life. Okay. Now, Elias, we're following the Beadle line... Elias's own grandfather is a guy called Benjamin Beadle. He was born in 18th of December 1741 in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and he fought in the Indian Wars and in the Revolutionary War. He was kind of appropriately a coffin maker, and uh, he was a pres- well, everybody has to do something. Well, you have to do something. And he was a Presbyterian who fathered at least 16 children from three wives. You are descended from the second of his so three wives. So basically I come from a long line of people who deny paternity. I think so. Okay, good. Just joking. Okay. I think so. Now, you, um, so that makes you a son of the American Revolution because you are directly descended from this guy who fought, and not only from him, but from another of your great-great-great-great-grandparents, Joel Squires and William Jennison. So you are a son of the American Revolution on at least three different lines. Wow. And I was one of the original Beatles. Oh, that's sorry. Oh, okay, fine. Peter. Now, if we follow the Beatle line back another three generations to Nathaniel Beadle, who is your seven times great-grandfather. You've done your research here. Oh, yes. He was born around 1646. He was a town constable in the town of Salem. And what is Salem famous for? Oh, you can tell me witchcraft. Witchcraft. Now, Nathaniel had a brother called Samuel who owned a pub in Salem. And it was in that pub there was an incident which led, unfortunately to the direct hanging of Alice Parker. I hate when that happens. Ah, don't go to pubs. They're dangerous places, particularly <laughs> back in the day. But, so you're, de- you're distinctly connected. Your family is mentioned in the Salem Witch Trials. But we can go even something a little bit even more fascinating. Because if we take back to your grandmother, Marguerite Jennison... Her father, John Morgan Jennison, his mother, Marie Antoinette Fowler, her mother, Elizabeth Ann Waller. Now, the Wallers are an extraordinary thing. And I can tell you, Peter, you are one in, I don't know, 10 million, possibly more, in how you've lucked out here. Because when I traced the Waller line, I could go back... I could go back 21 generations to Allured de Valeur, who was a Norman knight who came over to England in 1066 with William the Conqueror. So you are descended from a Norman knight. 
Of course I am. Of course you are. And I can tell by the cut here. But it gets even better because I had a kind of a brainwave. And that was, this knight came from Normandy. Okay. Well, what is Normandy? Normandy means land of the Northmen. Now, who were the Northmen? Vikings. Vikings. Now we're talking. Now we're talking because the inhabitants there had been in the sort of wider North French area for some 200 years as obviously de Valor, which morphed into Waller and Waller and so on. But if you could trace backwards, so de Valor, so if you go to Scandinavia and look for that type of name, you come up with Valer. And that is a trans, that was used in West Scandinavia, modern day Sweden, as a, what was called a byname. So you might be Thorsten Valer, meaning Thorsten the Falcon. So Valer means falcon. So if you were alive back then to your, and I calculated it's roughly your 30 times great grandfather, (laughs) (laughs) which is verging on the unbelievable, you might have been Peter the Falcon. I'll take that name now. Are you kidding? Uh, You can have it now. All right. so, So here's the deal. No Irish roots. No Irish roots. Although we at least at least one of my ancestors showed up in Ireland. He did. Elias Root Beetle. Okay. However, if you go on my mother's side, we were the warriors. Yes. Oh yes. And if you you were because and <laughs> yes, in, in I just thought that in, in two different ways you've kicked the English. Because <laughs> Your ancestors, three generations, three generations were directly involved in the American War, the Revolutionary War. Right. So you got, became independent. Oh, yeah, we did. Okay, there, yeah. And then on the Waller line, you kicked the English again back in 1066 when your ancestor, 21 times great grandfather, came over from Normandy. So you've done it twice. Wow. Congratulations. Okay. Where are my medals? <laughs> but this is the kind of work that you do and that the Irish Family History Center does so that even if you don't have Irish roots, you're going to learn a lot. Oh, yeah. We can, we can actually, obviously, we specialized uh, research Irish family history, um, but the principles of genealogy are the same. We've done, we've done yours, obviously. We've done Welsh. We've done English. We've done Hungarian. We've done South American um, people in the Caribbean, because it's anybody who has Irish roots, but from anywhere in the world. So we have to know the records from anywhere in the world, ideally to trace them back to Ireland, but we have to deal with those records everywhere. No matter where they are. No matter where they are. So we can and do How anybody. long did it take you to do this? That and a lot more took me the best part of three months to do. Unbelievable. But now, hey, look, I'm a falcon. You're a falcon. I have no more use for you. (laughs) (laughs) Fly away. Fly away. (laughs) My thanks to Patrick, to Eugene Garrahy, to David Gilroy, and to pilot Shay Hardy on this special Ireland edition of Ion Travel. And my thanks to you for listening to this podcast. In fact, for more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you don't need the luck of the Irish. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com.
Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.